Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So Jeff Bentley chased and dropped the 15-yard Roquan, the chef, Smith. Roquan Smith, he's the highlight show of this defense. In the ring, steve has got him up. A slam. But Blair, he's got Wood, too. He did it. He did it. Steve-O's got him up. And Blair has done it. Blair has done it. And there it goes. Abreu massacres this ball to left center field. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Across the street from the Chicago Theater, I am Jeff Meller along with Chris Bleck. Filling in for Jonathan Hood this evening as the Diana Ross concert is about to open up there. Does that get you going there, Jeff? Yeah, the the, uh, lights of the Chicago Theater. Dancing brightly, Chris, and yeah. uh, it is definitely a crowd that is ready to go in. So, you got a ticket? I do not. Okay, All right. but I'm okay. I'm, I'd rather right. be here with you. Because, I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> we sit inside the first Midwest Bank studio here on ESPN 1000, and we mentioned it earlier. We've been doing it all day. It is ESPY's night. It is ESPY's week, but it's ESPY's night as well, which means it is the day that we encourage all of our listeners out there to go to the V Foundation, V.org, and donate what you can to help eradicate cancer and end a terrible disease that touches everybody in some way. Yeah, now is our time. Let's do this together. Every dollar supports life-saving cancer research. You can donate at V.org. Over $100 million have been raised since 1993 when the foundation was found. The ESPYs are tonight. You can watch them on ABC television uh, all day long on ESPN 1000 and ESPN Radio nationally. Uh, We have focused on the V Foundation and V.org, giving you the information you need to donate for cancer research. 100% of all donations go to cancer research and to cancer programs. So it's an important cause. Uh, At some point, someone you know will be affected by it, if not you personally. And every dollar counts because technology gets better with with money and with time. And the more that we can pour into this, maybe the more we can get closer to uh, a solution to this terrible disease. And move our sights elsewhere if we can finally end it and then look towards accomplishing other goals. And that's why every little bit helps. So please, again, v.org for anything you can donate. We will also, if you have never heard it or you just feel like being inspired once again, at 9.30, we're going to play Jim Vilvano's famous speech from the 1993 ESPYs when he announced the foundation, the beginning of the V Foundation. And so we're going to give you an opportunity to go ahead and listen to that coming up at 9.30. A little bit later in the hour at 8.30, we're going to talk with Ben Lindbergh, of the ringer he has co-authored a baseball book 
Chris called the yeah. MVP machine. Nice. And I think Cubs fans and just baseball fans in general are going to mm. want to listen to that because I have started reading it. And let me tell you, it is a very good read and it is an excellent breakdown of maybe some of the differences, the underlying underlying differences in organizations like the Dodgers and Astros and how mm. they have kind of unearthed what we were talking about with Robert Flores, these guys like Max Muncy, Justin Turner, how they've turned cast-offs into, quote, MVP machines. Well, isn't that supposed to be David Bodie on the north side? You know what? (laughs) That's a perfect example of a type of player that the Cubs have found that, for whatever reason... The Dodgers have done the same thing with, but the guys they have... They're getting more production out of Absolutely. And look, yeah. it's not a knock on David Bodie. Bodie's been a good player for, you know... Yeah, with, he's no Max Muncy. Exactly. I'll give you that much. That, yeah. That's the point. And so Ben maybe can help us understand some of the differences across our organizations. And maybe we can get to the bottom of, you know, how much responsibility Joe Madden actually shoulders in these Cubs' poor start. And maybe we look, you know upwards towards the front office and say hey why are you guys the the you know the smartest guys in the room across baseball for you know the past decade why are you not unearthing some of the players that organizations like the Dodgers and the Astros are doing and Jeff you uh you are more uh into the weeds of a uh, baseball fan than I am mm-hmm. I I kind of take the flyover approach and and I'll watch the important games I'll pay attention to the Cubs and the White Sox here locally but I'm really looking at the big picture items when I consume baseball. And you're really diving into all the statistics and the day-to-day and different storylines across baseball. And to me, from someone with that point of view, I look at teams like the Dodgers and the Astros and the Yankees at kind of utilizing this new form of money ball. And maybe the Cubs were on that path and then they lost their way somewhere along this championship window couple of years right like i i feel like the cubs were in that wheelhouse and then all of a sudden theo got way too concerned about winning now and not about winning in the future Mm -hmm. and that's where you see the lack of talent in the farm system because you gave away your talent in the farm system for jose quintana and for uh chapman and that did conclude in a championship with chapman but if you look, kind of look at it and you pull back from the whole thing and you say, what if you never made that Quintana deal? Chances are the waves of players, we would be raving about a Aloy oh, for, for Jimenez sure. on the, the north side and how the waves of Cub players keep coming up. Here comes Dylan Cease into the rotation. And maybe mm-hmm. that championship window actually would have preserved itself a little bit longer than maybe what we're seeing right now this season. It's interesting you mentioned Moneyball because... Theo Epstein is famously quoted uh, about Moneyball, telling Billy Bean, I'm paraphrasing here, but saying something along the lines to Billy Bean of, why are you doing this book? Why would you give all of our competitors secrets. the secrets? Why yeah. would you give them away? And a lot of people across baseball will tell you that once Moneyball became mainstream, and it's undeniable, Moneyball is now, over, you know, I think it was released in 2003, I think, off the top of my head. I mean, you're, that's we're talking over 15 years ago. Everything that is in Moneyball at this point is in some ways obsolete. They're on yeah, to the new a, and better things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, if you don't know what Moneyball is or the basics of Moneyball, you, you, I can't help you here. But 
It's like someone uh, coming up with the idea of like, hey, I think NBA teams should shoot more threes. And you're like, where were you five years exactly. ago? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. And so yeah. now we're on to the new and better thing. And the, the question is, though, you know, have, have newer innovators figured this out? Overtaken Theo yeah. and Jed in terms of their innovation and what, they've, what they're doing in their organizations. We're going to talk to Ben Lindbergh about that coming up in about 20 minutes from now because, again, his uh, new book is fascinating and I think it potentially, you know, has some of those answers there for us. But again, Chris Black, Jeff Meller, filling in for Jonathan Hood here on ESPN 1000. And it is the 8 o'clock hour, which means during yes. the summertime on, right. on Under the Hood, it is the summer of football. Do it. The summer of football. We're just having fun and we're working, baby. With Jonathan Hood. Come on, baby, let's get it. Let's go now. You fired the first shot. Let's go, man. Five starts. We're deep in their own territory. And it's picked off. And he'll go in for the touchdown. He's just having fun and we're working, baby. Pressure now on Mahomes. He's in trouble. Now gets it away. Are you kidding me? Barkley up the middle, cuts to the outside. Saquon Barkley across that field. Standard bounds. And Barkley takes it all the way. Summer of football. All right, flips it open. Justin Ross off and running. And Clemson strengthens its grip on this championship game. Williams in the game for the first time this year for Notre Dame. Takes the hand up and takes off. All the way for a touchdown. Let's be great, baby. Let's go. The summer of football. You got it. Work. Right here on ESPN 1000. I think we ain't there yet. And the ESPN app. This evening's guest for the Summer of Football, Arthur Arkish, the managing editor at Pro Football Weekly, joining us here on ESPN 1000. Arthur, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Curious, your thoughts. Robbie Gold, currently franchised by the San Francisco 49ers, a kicker. Is there any way, any how, Robbie Gold can find some leverage and force his way out of San Francisco and somehow, someway, land back here in Chicago like all the Bears fans on Twitter seem to want. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Good to chat with you this evening. Uh, I, I guess, in short, the answer, well, I, I never will say never, uh, but it seems about as unlikely, anything short of me saying never, that that's going to happen. Uh, kickers don't have a lot of leverage to begin with, and especially not kickers who are franchise tagged for a, a salary of, I believe, about $5 million this season, so... Uh, the Niners don't really have a contingency plan, nor should they. I mean, I understand Robbie wanting to be back in Chicago and uh, that, you know, that a franchise tag does limit a, a player's earning power. But again, $5 million for one year for a kicker. Uh, he's going to be uh, top three at the position, I believe. And um, uh, you, you have to, the Bears aren't, don't have a lot of draft capital to part with anyway. So the only thing you're hoping for is that the Niners rescind the tag altogether. Uh, in which case Robbie Gold hits the open market and, uh, you know, Dave Gettleman isn't running the 49ers and, uh, <laughs> Robbie Gold doesn't have Josh Norman's off the field issues. So, uh, guys, I'm afraid I don't see it happening. I think it looks like it's going to be Elliot Fry and Eddie Pinheiro and Bourbonnet. And then we will be watching very, very closely on cut down day to see, uh, which vets, uh, add to the, add to the mix. After the kicker position, what do you think is the biggest weakness of this team as we head towards uh, training camp? Because it, to me, it seems like this roster is loaded and they're primed for a deep playoff run. What's the biggest weakness after kicker? Yeah, good question. I mean, I don't even know if weakness is the right word because I'm with you in that it is, it's truly a loaded roster with very few questions. But 
uh, with Trey Burton, you know, returning from the sports hernia surgery, um, kind of a, you know, a, a good and a bad thing. Obviously, you don't ever want to see any players going under the knife, but at least the people who wondered whether he was really hurt in January will kind of slow their roll or stop that altogether. So maybe that was the one positive in that regard. But uh, with questions surrounding Trey Burton's health, uh, you know, with perennial questions surrounding Adam Shaheen's health and whether he's going to kind of fully realize his potential, uh, I think tight end is probably the most volatile spot. We know Matt Nagy wants to, to use two of them more often. I mean, I was actually just writing on this. Uh, the Bears, I think, were the third lowest uh, two tight end personnel team in the NFL last year, just 18% of the time. Uh, when you look at what they were doing in Philadelphia and Kansas City, Philly was at like 35 after dra- drafting Dallas Goddard last year, Kansas City in the high 20s. So uh, we know the Bears want to get closer to that number. Uh, the good news is they have great wide receiver depth. I think better than the Chiefs, probably on par with the Eagles, if not better. So they do have some flexibility there. Uh, but in order to kind of have all uh, the bullets at his disposal, if you will, I think Nagy wants to feel better about his tight end situation uh, heading into this season uh, than he did by you know week one last year after Adam Shaheen got hurt and it kind of stalled what looked like a really good camp for him. Okay, Arthur Arkish of Pro Football Weekly. What do you make of... The Westgate labeling Trubisky a 200 to 1 MVP at 200 to 1 to win the MVP. And then since moving him down to 50 to 1, and now he's been dropped even lower to 30 to 1 after an oh, influx no. of cash coming in on the Bears quarterback. What, uh, like, what has to happen in your mind? Because I, in Nagy's offense, I could see a scenario where Trubisky. If everything goes well, he puts up some gaudy stats. But with the defense they have, do you, is there any way he can actually garner some MVP consideration? Consideration? Yeah, I mean, I don't see why not. You know, he's the, the he's the quarterback of a you know Super Bowl contender, and he's got uh, a ton of room between where he is now and where his ceiling is uh, physically. He pretty you know I think he has pretty much all you want at the position. So I think there's definitely a chance. But based on what we saw last year. Uh, pretty clear he has a, a long, long way to go. What you didn't see uh, in Pat Mahomes, which is so incredible in his first year as the starter, uh, were the same type of, of really drastic peaks and valleys that we saw in Mitch's game. You know, the, the franchise record 420-plus passer rating games, but then a couple just, you know, turnover fests, frankly, uh, and, and questionable decision-making in certain games where he put them in bad spots. So, I think he has to level out his performance. No, you're not looking for those six touchdown onslaughts like you put on the Buccaneers every week, although certainly a couple of them will be nice if you're going to be a serious MVP candidate. But more than anything, I just think he needs to uh, to even out, to be more consistent, definitely to be more accurate. I think that that 66% completion percentage is a little bit misleading. Um, and those are a couple of things he has to work on, and certainly he's going to have a chance. I mean, he's got a brilliant play caller in Matt Nagy. He's got the makings of, I think, a fairly brilliant supporting staff here, supporting cast, if you will. So uh, a long ways to go, but I do understand, uh, you know, kind of shortening those odds for sure. And I, and I know what happened there. There was a, quite a fuss made on Twitter, and I think it kind of happened directly after that. Uh, so I do get it, but I don't know, from 200 to 1 to what you said, I guess 30 to 1 seems like it's a, it's a pretty... Uh, that's a pretty drastic shift, obviously. When you watch the film on Trubisky, you know, the, the one thing that I point out is, like, in the wildcard game, he had some sick throws in the second half. He was really good. But in the first half, he had some throws that were just confusing. And when you watch <laughs> him and you break down the film, what do you see it on see on film that kind of points out to why he has such wild inconsistency in his throws? 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. He should have had, I, I counted, I, I think, three interceptions in that game. Um, ended up turnover free, I believe. So he got really lucky. That was more on the Eagles, DBs, not hanging on to any of those gifts that they uh, that they should have received. But, um, you know, I think the processing speed can still speed up a little, uh, can, 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 you know, get faster for sure. And that's to be expected from a guy who, you know, entered last season with 12 NFL starts, only 25 combined when you go back to that last season in North Carolina. So, I think that part's going to happen naturally, and I think everything we've been hearing uh, and a little bit of what we saw at Hallis this summer in terms of his uh, seeing things at the line of scrimmage and and being able to do his own pre-snap adjustments, having a lot more freedom, that's going to help. I think it's just going to kind of it's going to slow him down. It's going to have him better versed with what he's seeing and what he's able to react to. So I think that's part of it. But I also think just his mechanics. I mean, he had issues with his lower body mechanics where he was stepping with the football. Um, he wasn't going through progressions all that great. I think he tended to lock in on the read. So um, I don't think these are alarming things for someone with his, you know, lack of experience and uh, coming from such a clown show offense, you know, the one he came from as a rookie. So I don't think there are any of these severe reasons to panic that some others suggest, uh, but it does speak to the, you know, the, the, just the amount of space that he has to grow still and, uh, it's really in all areas. I mean, he's got to become more accurate. He's got to be more fundamentally sound. He's got to make better decisions. So there's a long way to go, but no reason to, to think, that, in my opinion, that he can't get there. Arthur, you mentioned uh, earlier there Patrick Mahomes. I'm curious your thoughts about how his season may go if, in fact, Tyreek Hill is suspended for any length of time. Of course, uh, for those who are unaware, the other day, uh, the full audio recording of Tyreek Hill's argument with his fiance was aired on a Kansas City radio station where Tyreek Hill does quite a bit of denying of the actual allegations. And so now the waters have been muddied. The NFL has an ongoing investigation. We're unsure of exactly what his availability is going to be to the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you think a full season suspension is on the, still on the table for Hill? And if so, how will Patrick Mahomes be affected? Yeah, my understanding, uh, a couple things. My understanding is that the NFL has had the full uh, content of that audio, so there's no new revelations for them as they try and kind of put a wrap on this investigation. So I think that part's big. Uh, from what I've been able to gather, from what I've read, from what I've heard, uh, the new portions of audio, I, I don't think they're all that scathing when it comes to kind of, you know, Tyreek's side of this, his image, his perspective. I don't know that it necessarily makes him look that much worse. Um, Now, all that being said, there's enough here. And I think the threats in the first part of the the audio that, of course, was leaked on on night one of the draft, and uh, I'm pretty sure early in night two kind of forced the Chiefs' hand into going going and getting Mikal Hardman. I don't believe that pick happens without that, uh, you know, those developments the night before. So, I do think a suspension is coming. Um, I have no idea how long it's going to be. I don't believe it's going to be a full season anymore. I'm just getting the sense, uh, again, from a little bit I've heard, more that I've read on this. Uh, Yahoo, Terez Taylor has been as plugged in as anyone on the story. He was on chief speed forever. He was reporting the tone was positive after that meeting a couple weeks ago in Kansas City. So uh, I still believe we are going to get some closure on this in the next seven, ten days, thereabouts, before camp starts. Um, as far as the length of suspension, again, I'm not sure. I do think that it's, it will greatly affect Pat Mahomes. There's no doubt about it. Uh, again, the Chiefs just don't have the same type of wide receiver depth as, as some other teams, not even the Bears, believe it or not. Uh, they've got a great play caller in Andy Reid, who I think can cover up a lot of this, can uh, scheme open some other options for, for Mahomes. But I don't know. I'll throw it back to you guys. Do you believe in Sammy Watkins as a, a true number one? I know he got paid that way, but I'm not sure we've really seen that yet. 
uh, in his career. So I just I don't have a great deal of confidence in him to step up to the plate. I think Nico Arbor four games be a that project. he's healthy, Arthur. For the four games that he's healthy, I think he can be. <laughs> right, well, exactly, and, and that of course is the point here. I mean, yes, he's had bright flashes. No, he has never. Uh, it's easy to forget. I mean, he was drafted in that epic 2014 class of wide receivers. I believe he went first, and I believe the Bills made an unbelievable trade up to do it. So um, <clears throat> we'll see. You know, Travis Kelsey's coming off surgery and didn't work at all in the spring, so that's another, I won't call it a concern, but it's certainly another factor here. You need to see how he comes back and whether he's himself. So uh, in terms of a, you know, a projection uh, you know, with Tyreek versus without, I have no idea. I know Pat Mahomes isn't throwing for 50 touchdowns or 5,000 yards again, but uh, I'd imagine he's still going to be pretty darn good because he certainly looks pretty darn special. How do you see the pairing of Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers and Green, Green Bay working for their first year together? Yeah, I wish I knew. Uh, if, I, if I had the answer to that, I, I'm in the wrong profession. But <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's fascinating, guys. I mean, it, I think this can uh, – I think I might be a little bit higher on the Packers' talent than some others. Um, I think the defense actually has a chance to be pretty good. I know there are a lot of new pieces, uh, a lot of unproven pieces. But I just kind of like – the makeup of that personnel, uh, as far as you know, Rodgers and, and Lafleur goes, I just I, I can't tell how much of a fire he's going to have lit underneath him. I can't tell yet how much Lafleur's offense is going to kind of stimulate him mentally versus uh, just how things just got stale and, and stagnant with Mike McCarthy. Obviously, we've we all read the Bleacher Report story. We probably already all knew a lot about it before then. Uh, the guy's calling his own plays in the huddle, so. Um, I think it has a chance to go well, but I do think that that Mike Silver NFL story from a few weeks ago uh, regarding the sort of disconnect on, on audibles and, and the control at the line of scrimmage uh, is concerning because that sounds like a, a bit of another brewing power struggle to me. So maybe it was overblown. Maybe it'll all end up being much ado about nothing. But that part of it uh, definitely worries me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just – Rogers has to understand that – he was a part of the problem, and he's a big part of the reason that Mike McCarthy's gone. And if he's not willing to adapt, which is something we haven't seen in 13 years or whatever it is, uh, then I don't think it's going to work. But he's smart, too, and I think he senses that he's got a, a play caller here who's going to give him a chance. So if he is willing to be a little less stubborn than the Aaron Rodgers we've all kind of uh, grown accustomed to, then I think it can be a really good marriage. But there's just so many ifs right now. I really can't wait to see it. You can follow him on Twitter at Arthur Arkish. Arthur, thanks so much for joining us this evening. We appreciate it. All right, fellas. It's my pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Arthur Arkish of Pro Football Weekly there during the summer of football. Yeah, and we're going to talk baseball coming up uh, in about five minutes right here on ESPN 1000. But remember today, because of the ESPYs going on, it's the uh, Jimmy V day, day here at ESPN 1000. Uh, you can donate to the V Foundation at v.org slash donate. Uh, please do. Cancer research and a 100% of all donations go to cancer research and programs for cancer research. Uh, over $100 million have been raised to date. And uh, do your part because at some point you'll know somebody who's affected by cancer. And it, it's definitely a worthy cause. So to donate, v.org. He's Chris Black. I'm Jeff Meller. And for Jonathan Hood, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and the author of The MVP Machine up next here on ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I 
am Jeff Meller along with Chris Bleck sitting in for Jonathan Hood this evening. Again, it is SB's night, which means it is our plea to you to go ahead and give what you can to the V Foundation at V.org. Every little bit helps. So please go ahead and donate. We've been talking about it all show long. We'll continue to do so again at 930. We'll let you hear Jim Valvano's brilliantly inspiring speech from the ESPYs in 1993. Again, that's about an hour from right now. But right now, Chris, it is our pleasure to bring in Ben Lindbergh of The The Ringer. He has co-authored The MVP Machine along with Travis Sachik. And Ben, as we bring you in this evening, a lot of uh, good stuff being said about The MVP Machine. So I ask you, in about a decade from now, Brad Pitt played Billy Bean in Moneyball. Ah. Have you thought about who plays Ryan Presley in the MVP Machine book? Yeah, I wonder. Maybe he won't be too old to play himself. Uh, That's an option. It's a little tougher because there's no one figure that this story is based around the way that Moneyball is about being in the A's. So you'd have to have more of an ensemble cast, I think. You know, Ben, when when we take a look uh, across baseball right now, the one thing that I've been saying is that it's a young man's game, and it seems like we saw that even more last night with the All-Star game. There were guys that were rolling out there. I host a sports talk radio show. There were guys that were out there that I've never seen before, uh, and it seems like there are so many young players in baseball today, and it seems like the good teams, the Dodgers, the Astros, the Yankees, are loaded with this young talent. How and why are we seeing so many young, great players in today's game? Yeah, I actually just wrote a a new article about that at The Ringer today. There's been so much turnover, particularly on the offensive side. You know, you look at the leaderboards for the past several years, and every year there are new names at at the top. You know, almost half of the All-Star team rosters this year was new guys, first-time All-Stars. And that's happening over and over again. It's these guys who are so polished at early ages. I mean, these precocious superstars who are coming up and producing right away. And I think it has a a couple of origins. I think it's, you know, partly that teams are doing a better job of drafting players and, you know, finding guys, getting them into their minor league system. I think that's part of it. But I think it definitely is also the player development improvements that we wrote about in the book. You know, even guys in amateur ball these days are exposed to technology and techniques and training tools that in the past were not available. And, you know, I think in the past you used to have a real learning curve and guys would get to the majors and they'd struggle for a while. And now it's like they're all hitting the ground running right away because they've been prepared so well, whether it's as kids, you know, on travel ball teams, the coaching at that level is improved or it's just in the minor leagues, you get introduced to all this technology and it's not really reliant on trial and error anymore. And, you know, going through years of failure before you figure out what works and what doesn't. It's a a much more scientific process now because of the data and the technology that's being applied to and by these players. Ben, uh, in your research doing this book, both you and Travis did a lot of work. And I'm curious because in Chicago here, a lot of Cubs fans are, are gnashing their teeth about about what the Cubs are doing. They're 47-43. They sit atop the NL Central. But, of course, it's it's uh, it, they've gotten there in a fashion that uh, Cubs fans are not very happy with. In the meantime, they look at teams like the Astros, who they've been compared with you know, for the past five years, it seems like, nonstop. And also a team like the Dodgers, who have been their nemesis in the NL Central. And Cubs fans wonder, 
do the Dodgers and Astros do things differently than the Cubs are doing right now? Yeah, you know, the story kind of took us, we followed where it led in our reporting. You know, it's often behind the scenes what teams are doing in player development, which is why this subject hasn't been written about that much before. You know, this is all happening on bullpens and backfields and batting cages and guys get drafted and then they go away for a while and then maybe they show up in the majors and it's hard to know how they got from point A to point B. But as we were writing the book, it became clear that there were certain teams that were really leading the way when it came to this frontier of baseball, you know, not the Moneyball idea of just finding talent that's already out there, guys who are already good but are undervalued by the market. I think the Cubs did a pretty good job of that, you know, when they went out and they got Hendricks or they went out and got Arietta and, and, you know, were able to make something of those guys. And, and that's, to some extent, a player development success, too, but... I think these days it's really the Astros, it's the Dodgers, it's the Yankees, it's the Rays. It's these teams that I think pivoted to player development that realized that this was going to be the area of the greatest innovation and growth and really invested in new technology and hired new kinds of coaches. And when you heard Theo Epstein talking recently about how, you know, if things don't work out, they may have to make some changes, that may be part of what he had in mind of kind of getting on board with this new movement because you saw over the last offseason every other team it seemed like was hiring Astros front office people Astros coaches and sure the team has had success at the major league level but it's really what they've done below that in the minors and setting up this player development pipeline that I think a lot of teams are going to be trying to emulate you know Ben something you mentioned when talking about young players is you mentioned new techniques what are some of those new techniques that the younger players are implementing to become so successful Well, I think everyone's pretty familiar now with the idea of, you know, changing your swing, trying to elevate the ball, particularly now that the baseball seems to have changed and is carrying so much better, it's more advantageous to get the ball in the air if you can. And so the old ideas of, you know, hit down on the ball like you're chopping wood, you know, go the other way, uh, level swing, I mean, that's kind of being phased out now. And guys are employing more, you know, power-centric swings. And that's part of it on the offensive side. And that's, I think, getting easier to implement because we have swing sensors now. We have sensors that hitters can wear when they swing to see how their entire body is moving. You've got, you know, batted ball trackers set up in the batting cage so that after every swing you take, you can see, okay, did that go at the launch angle that I'm aiming for? Did I hit that hard? You know, there's this great feedback now that you get after every pitch after every swing in practice and on the pitching side i think the science of pitch design now is really the the hot new area of baseball where in the past you had guys you know picking up a pitch now and then refining a pitch because they came across the right coach at the right time or maybe a teammate was able to show them a grip in the bullpen something like that you know that worked for guys but if you don't run across the the right person at the right time it doesn't happen whereas now You have all this technology. You have these high-speed cameras that show you exactly how the ball is coming out of your hands in ways that pitchers can't even tell until they see the footage. You've got devices that track the spin of the pitch, the movement. So, again, you decide, I want to throw a pitch that moves like this, and then you just design it from scratch. You know, it's almost like baseball has become this laboratory now where you decide what you want your mechanics to look like and what you want the results to be, and then you can move toward that in a a much more rigorous way than I think you could in the past. We're talking with Ben Lidberg of The Ringer. 
uh, co-author of the MVP machine here on ESPN 1000, Jeff Black, or Jeff Miller, Chris Black, filling in for Jonathan Hood here on ESPN 1000. Ben, uh, one of the one of the uh, collateral damages maybe of of some of the stuff you're talking about here is the idea that teams maybe look at what they have, the players that they have on the roster, and they say, you know what, we can go ahead and unearth a gem for you know the uh the minimum salary and just put them in the majors and not worry about overpaying a free agent on the market that's something we've seen play out now in the past couple of off seasons and even you know what we some something that we saw in cleveland yesterday was garrett cole and clayton kershaw both being very vocal about the fact that players are no longer getting paid when they hit free agency but why would you if you're an organization when you can just go ahead and get a cheaper solution so I guess I'm wondering, Ben, what do you see the where, what's the path here for the uh, MLBPA as they move forward when organizations are kind of treating them like disposable parts more than they ever have? Yeah, I think that's the big question, big challenge facing them right now, and why it's probably a good thing that they're starting these CBA talks, uh, you know, a couple of years before the CBA expires, because it's going to take some time to figure out way around this and i don't know that there is an easy way around it we were just talking about all the young talent all the young hitters i mean you know you watch pete alonzo and vlad Guerrero jr in the home run derby and these guys are you know making more money by winning the derby than they are all season long because they're making the major league minimum and teams love that of course but these days when so much of the production in the league is concentrated in these under 25 guys these guys in their first few years of service time those are the guys who don't get paid because historically the whole economic system of baseball has been based on free agency, on the idea that you get to free agency at a certain time and you cash in at that point, you know, and, and teams would pay for that track record, that past production. Now that's not the case anymore because, A, I think teams realize, okay, we know what the aging curve looks like, and by the time most guys get to free agency, their best days probably are behind them, and we don't want to pay them for those days. We want to pay them for what they're going to do for us. And then, as you mentioned, all these player development techniques, I mean, we've seen so many guys go from good to great, from not so good to good. There's just, I think, less incentive to pay a premium for that free agent who's demonstrated that he can do it when you know that you can call up a prospect you've groomed to do the same job for the minimum or pick up someone who's maybe been bouncing around and you realize that if he just made a a certain change, if he changed his swing, if he started throwing a certain pitch more often, he could replicate the production of the more expensive established guy for a lot less money. And, you know, I don't know what the Players Association does other than just draw a line and make that the priority and say you get to qualify for free agency earlier. Maybe there's a, a major increase in the major league minimum salary for those guys in the first few years of service time, or maybe it does come down to threatening not to play, which is kind of the ultimate leverage that the players might have. Ben, when we look at all the home run numbers, and clearly something's going on with the baseball itself, uh, do you think with the increase of home runs and the way the game is being played with all the information you've explained to us in this interview and what we are seeing, the product on the field, do you think that it's better baseball to to the consumer? I get that there's more home runs, but I don't necessarily think that more home runs equals better baseball. Yeah, you know, I think that's a valid concern, and it's one we talk about in the book. I think 
everyone has different tastes. You know, there's a different brand of baseball that some people prefer. And if you grew up in a certain era watching a certain kind of baseball, you might not like this one. And I understand why, because people like to see balls in play. They like to see fielding opportunities. They like to see base running. And what we have right now is a pretty static station-to-station, all-or-nothing type game where you're seeing more and more plate appearances ending without contact or without a ball in play, you know, walks, home runs, strikeouts. And all the things that we write about in the book that we've been talking about, all these new techniques, all this technology, it's only exacerbating those trends because pitchers want to prevent contact. That's the best thing that a pitcher can do is get a strikeout and they're getting better and better at doing that. And hitters, of course, want to hit the ball over the fence. They're getting better at that, too, especially with the ball behaving the way it is. And so they're pursuing the things that help them the most, and teams, of course, are going after guys who can do those things. So it makes sense from the player perspective. It makes sense from the team perspective. But that doesn't mean it's better for fans and better for baseball in the long run. And I don't think it's just going to fix itself. You know, I, I don't think this is a cyclical thing. We're in, what, the 13th consecutive season of rising strikeout rates at this point, something like that. And I don't think it's going to just magically go back to what it was. So if MLB decides that this is not what the fans want and we want to go back to baseball as it was, I think they need to intervene. And and I think there are things you can do. You know, you can deaden the ball. You can shrink the strike zone. You can move the mound back or lower the mound. And they are experimenting with some of those things in other leagues, which I think is a good thing. And, you know, they can change it, but it's going to take actually being proactive and changing some rules, which, you know, always seems like a radical solution in baseball where there's so much tradition. And anytime we propose changing anything, there's an uprising, there's a revolt. But I think that's going to have to happen sometime soon. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Lindbergh. Writes for The Ringer as well, along with, again, check out the MVP machine. It is very informative. Ben, thanks so much for joining us this evening, and uh, thanks for writing the book because it uh, makes us smarter about baseball, so we appreciate it. Well, thanks for reading it. Good talking to you guys. Thanks, Ben. You know, uh, Jeff, the one thing that I, I think is interesting is if you point out that there are players that are making the minimum that teams are taking and then having them adjust something to then get more out of that player so they don't have to pay the overpriced free agent, doesn't that tell you that the overpriced free agent should probably change their game a little so then they can actually be more productive than what they were? Isn't that the solution? Like, if Clayton Kershaw is upset that guys are not getting paid in their 30s, yeah. Those big contracts, isn't the solution for those guys to then change their game to be even more impactful? I think, though, the, the look, I, not that that's necessarily wrong, but I think the thing is, like, those the players who are hitting that are already productive players. You know what I mean? And it's not, like, sure. they may have reached the limits of, of how good they, they as a player can be. And in the past, there was a, a quid pro quo agreement, whether it was uh, actually set or not. It was, okay... When we come up, you know, and give you the first six, you know, or seven, if you manipulate our service time, like, yeah. like the Cubs did with Chris Bryant, then we're going to be underpaid all that time. But when we finally hit free agency, you're going to pay, you're going to pay. Yeah. And, and cause that was always what baseball did right. through the seventies and eighties when free agency was actually, you know, became available to players. But now, and, and again, if you're a company running a business, you, you want to decrease your overhead. So if you're a baseball organization and you're hiring smart GMs and you're paying your GMs $10 million a year to find ways to to unearth cheap talent, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's ever going to go back to being close to that way unless, you know, players really look at their, their union and say, we need to 
find a way to get to free agency after three or four years because our peak years now, which is like 25 to 27, those are the only years that baseball teams really covet us. After that, you hear 28-year-olds, that's ancient in baseball now, and they're, they're worrying about your decline at that point. Who is Jeff McNeil? Oh, he's the Mets... Uh, Second baseman I'm, I'm slash look, I'm looking at the box I, yeah. score from last oh, night, yeah. and, and I was going to make a point and do a bit and start reading off names I didn't know, but well, I actually know many of these all-stars. Sure. But Jeff McNeil, I've never even heard of until and, today. And look, you are not... Your He's point, 27. He plays for the Mets. He was an all-star. And he has one year of experience from Long Beach State. That is perfect, though. What Ben just talked about. He's 27. <laughs> he is one year of experience. He, 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 look, 349 average, seven home runs, 36 RBI, and OP, uh, OBP of 409. Jeff McNeil toiled in the minors, and, you know, again, swing changes, all this stuff that Ben talked about. One of the big, most concerning things, and maybe we'll continue this here on the, uh, under the hood on ESPN 1000, is of the organizations he mentioned, he talked, Ben told us. The Cubs are not at the forefront. Yeah, that's a problem. You know, he said the Astros, Dodgers, Yankees, and Rays. Those are the four organizations that are the trendsetters right now. And perhaps the Cubs are stuck in the Moneyball era when that era is already over. We'll talk about that more next. If you want to join in, 312-332-3776. Under the Hood on ESPN 1000.